0: We're continuing with our series for the mornings in Lent. It's called Turn Your Eyes. And where we're up to is lament. And we're looking at Psalm 88, the only psalm which has no redeeming side to it. A number of the psalms, uh, almost 42, are ones that are described as lament psalms, where people are shouting out to God saying, act, my life is rubbish, step in. Uh, Most of those are uh, individuals shouting out to God. About 10 of those are a community expressing themselves to God in that way. In all of these Psalms, except for Psalm 88, people go through suffering and they express themselves to God, but virtually all of them end on a note of hope. I will see your goodness, or I know that you're with me. But Psalm 88 is not like that. And that provokes the question why is this in the 150 Psalms? I think it's there because there is a raw reality when we're going through tough times. There's a raw reality in our relationship with God where we can say, this is rubbish. What I'm going through is absolutely awful. And I think that there's real power with being very open and honest with God. After all, he knows it all anyway. He knows everything that's going on in our lives. So I'm going to read Psalm 88. Lord, You are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. Uh, the title of this psalm is the longest uh, title and it ascribes this psalm to somebody called Heman the Ezraite and he, uh, along with the sons of Korah, are credited with writing a number of the psalms. Uh, you can check out Psalms 42 to 50 to see some of their works. Heman is uh, uh, described in Chronicles as one of a group of famous uh, sages, and he's also involved in the leading of worship. So he's not a man who's always in a place of darkness and the pit, and here we are generations later reading his psalms and using these to worship God. But it's really clear that in this psalm he's in an incredibly tough place. He counts his life, the situation that he's in, as if he's in the grave, as if he is dead. Either that's a physical reality for him, he's close to death due to illness. Or it is how he is viewing his situation. It's what he feels. Either a subjective reality, that what he feels is going on. Or it's an objective reality. He is very close to death. Whichever one of those it is, for people in that time, the place he's talking of, you're in the grave, you're dead was a place where people did not expect God to be involved. Only designated people were allowed to reach out and touch the dead in those days, otherwise they were counted as ceremonially unclean. The pit is, at one level, another way to speak of a grave. People who did not have a family tomb, queue in Rock, might be buried in a grave pit. So... Heman, the psalmist here, is describing his life as being like a living death. God has put him in the pit. His friends have abandoned him. They're horrified. They couldn't cope with what has happened to him. My eyes are dim with grief. Many of us can identify with the exhaustion of grieving, the inability to see clearly at those times. And a tomb or a grave is clearly a place of darkness. When the stone is opened, light comes. But when the stone is rolled back, all is pitch black. This man has run out of strength to live. It's as if he's dead, and therefore he's not expecting God to be involved. So the questions that he asks from verses 10 to 12 are rhetorical questions where he is expecting the answer, no. Do you show your wonders to the dead, Lord? No. Do their spirits rise up and praise you? No. Is your love declared in the grave? No. Your faithfulness in destruction? No. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? No. Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? No. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. This is remarkable. Note this. He is not expecting God in the place where he is in of death, darkness, and oblivion. He's not expecting God to step in and to rescue him and to raise him up, but he still cries to God for help. He still prays in the morning. This is an extraordinary statement of faith. He's absolutely not expecting God to act in that situation. Yet he still prays to God. I wonder how much of our faith, of my faith, is based on a kind of transactional, Lord, I'll pray, I expect you to come in. Good, we're all happy now. A Big Mac approach to faith. Uh, Not Big Mac McLaurin, I mean, uh, you know, an immediate (laughs) (laughs) receiving of food in our consumer culture. No, this man's been taken to an extra stage here. A stage where he is saying to God, no matter what, I am going to pray. And there are times in our lives as Christians where that is the reality for us where it feels like we're in a very dark place or we are in a very dark place. And all we can do is cry out to God and ask people around us to cry out to God on our behalf. And that is where faith is fully formed. That's where our relationship with God moves from a what can you do for me to what can I do for you place of darkness and difficulty is the place of formation where we rely on God so I want to applaud this man for this extraordinary statement of faith that we read right in the middle of Psalm 88 I also need to say about what he says here is, again, for someone of that time, well, those verses that I read, those are things you shouldn't really be saying to God. He's calling out to God and saying, you're just not gonna do anything, are you? He's mocking God. His attitude there, I mean, at a minimum, it's ill-judged, intemperate, angry, It's getting towards blasphemous, isn't it? While, on the one hand, those questions requiring the answer no lead to a comment, but I cry out to you for help, God. They show great faith on the part of this man. On the other side, he's saying things that he really shouldn't be saying. Look, take a fantastic leader like Moses. I mean, he was not allowed to see God's face because God was so awesome. And later when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets, his face was so radiant because he'd spoken with God that people had to veil their faces. God is awesome, powerful. And yet these cries from Haman are in the Bible. Somebody's gonna come afterwards, I hope, and pronounce, uh, correct all my Hebrew pronunciations because I've made a mess of them. I'm Scottish, sorry, so. I've got Scottish pronunciations for them. Come and tell me the correct pronunciations afterwards. And if you want to read about Moses, check out Exodus 33 and 34. So I've described this cry for help as an extraordinary statement of faith, but the fact that this psalm is in the Bible is an extraordinary statement of grace. Derek Kidner, the warden of Tyndale House in the past, said, the very presence of these prayers in scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how people speak when they're desperate. And Tim Keller, that great church leader, building on that point from Derek Kidner, says this means that God is identifying with those who do pray like that because he's the God of grace and understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. Tim Keller goes on to say, God, it's like God is saying I am the God of this man even though he's not getting it right because I am the God of grace. I'm your God, not because you put on a happy face in the morning, not because you say everything right, not because you do everything right. I'm your God, because I'm a God of grace. How liberating is that for each one of us? This psalm is a psalm that shows us we can be real with God, with what's going on in our lives you know you can really let rip it god you can really say what is going on you can even express doubt I, uh, a, f- a few years ago uh, now my my father died in 2006 and the build up to that was 6 years of progressive uh, dementia and that had its uh, funny sides to it where Uh, he would end up walking out the house and wandering around uh, the locality, and uh, then my mum would get a phone call saying, uh, your husband's here, and she would go and get him and bring him back. And so there was funny sides to it. Um, But what I saw, uh, firstly from a distance and then a little bit more close up, was this increasing sense of loss where I was not recognising my father anymore. But when my dad eventually died, I was really, really bereft. And I went to... I mean, for me, that was the most important man in my life had died. And I talked with my spiritual director, and she identified for me how angry I was about the process over the six years of my dad's demise and then his subsequent death. And she called it out to me. She said, you have a buildup of loss and grief, but you're really angry. You need to go and talk to God about that. You can express that to God. You can really go for it, Anne. And I needed to be given permission to do that. If Psalm 88 does anything for us, it tells us that we can be raw, real with God. Hmm. Now, the translation that we read ends... Uh, saying darkness is my closest friend. But actually, the original Hebrew ends on the word darkness. It's as if it really wants to make that low point. So it should read, You have taken from me friend and neighbor. My closest friend is darkness. 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 Years later, we're here on the other side of the cross. When Jesus died, darkness covered the land between 12 and 3, according to Matthew 27, verse 45. And for us now, those questions that Haman the Ezraite asks because of those questions that he asks in verses 10 to 12. Because of Jesus, we can answer yes. Here we go. Do you show your wonders to the dead? We can answer yes, because Jesus, when he died, went down into the grave, and then he rose again. Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Yes. Is your love declared in the grave? Yes. Your faithfulness in destruction? Yes. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Yes. Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Yes. what the Father and the Son and the Spirit planned together for the redemption of the whole of humanity caused Jesus to enter the darkness of death. And his cry in Gethsemane to the Father was take this cup from me because Jesus knew he was going to be in the place of feeling the subjective and the objective reality of being completely abandoned by God, as he went through the process of death and going to hell and conquering what was going on there, but he had to go through the pain, the suffering, the separation from God, the cry of being forsaken, in order to win for us the emphatic yes in answer to those questions. In the face of impending darkness, he cried out in Gethsemane, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He went through it all for us. Why? Well, he was taking our sins the sins of the world upon himself. Because we are self-centered, aren't we? We do use others. We do stock up from supermarket shelves. We deserve that darkness and for God to turn his face away from us. But Jesus Took the darkness so that when we believe in him our sins are forgiven Jesus Christ experienced darkness as his only friend so that in your darkness you can know that Jesus is your only friend he is still there Jesus was truly abandoned so that for us We only feel abandoned. We can know that God is still there. He is not going to abandon you, no matter what you've done. That question, do the dead rise up and praise you? If you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the answer is yes you will rise up and you hold on to that. Tim Keller tells a story of a woman with a chronic illness who whenever anybody asked her how she was doing would answer, nothing that the resurrection won't cure. (laughs) We need to hold on to that hope that does not disappoint us. When we feel that we're in that place of darkness, there is an objective reality that God is with us in that. We may not feel it, but it is truth. That is what Jesus has won for us. in a moment we're going to gather around the communion table that place of remembrance of what Jesus has done and I want to encourage you that if you're in a place of lament today it's a real place it's an open and honest place it's a transparent place to say to God this is what's going on I also want to give preeminence to what Jesus has done by conquering darkness and the grave and bringing objective reality that he is with us. We may not be feeling it. It may be subjective for us. We may be still feeling rubbish but there is an objective reality that this is what Jesus has won and he walks through that with us through times of darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death. Whether we're aware of it or not, that is the reality. That is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. He walks with us through these times of difficulty and darkness.